0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, The Purloined Letter by Edgar Allan Poe. And I think our timing is good here, especially for you, Poe Toasters. The Poe Toaster is the media sobriquet used to refer to an unidentified person, or probably more than one person in succession, who for several decades paid an annual tribute to the American author Edgar Allan Poe by visiting the cenotaph marking his original grave in Baltimore, Maryland, in the early hours of January 19th, Poe's birthday. The shadowy figure, dressed in black with a wide-brimmed hat and white scarf, would pour himself a glass of cognac or cherry brandy, a Montalato or scotch whiskey, and raise a toast to Poe's memory, then vanish into the night, leaving three roses in a distinctive arrangement— and the unfinished bottle of liqueur. Onlookers gathered annually in hopes of glimpsing the elusive toaster, who did not seek publicity and was rarely seen or photographed. According to eyewitness reports and notes accompanying offerings in later years, the original toaster made the annual visitation from sometime in the 1930s, though no report appeared in print until 1950, until his death in 1998, after which the tradition was passed, to a son. Controversial statements were made in some notes left by the post-1998 toaster. In 2010, there was no visit by the toaster, with absences in 2011 and 2012 signaling an end to the 75-year tradition. However, in 2016, the Maryland Historical Society selected a new toaster to revive the tradition. If you happen to be in Baltimore on the evening of January 19th, you might want to see if you can catch him. Meanwhile, we'll regale you with Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter. Note, purloined means stolen or borrowed. And now our story. At Paris, just after dark, one gusty evening in the autumn of 1841— I was enjoying the twofold luxury of meditation at a meerschaum, in company with my friend C. Auguste Dupin, in his little back library, or book closet, au Tracemme, number 33, Rue Junot, Falbourg-Saint-Germain. For one hour at least we had maintained a profound silence, while each, to any casual observer, might have seemed intently and exclusively occupied with the curling eddies of smoke that oppressed the atmosphere of the chamber. FOR MYSELF, HOWEVER, I WAS MENTALLY DISCUSSING CERTAIN TOPICS WHICH HAD FORMED MATTER FOR CONVERSATION BETWEEN US AT AN EARLIER PERIOD OF THE EVENING. I MEAN THE AFFAIR OF THE RUE MORGUE, AND THE MYSTERY ATTENDING THE MURDER OF MARIE ROGET. I LOOKED UPON IT, THEREFORE, AS SOMETHING OF A COINCIDENCE, WHEN THE DOOR OF OUR APARTMENT WAS THROWN OPEN AND ADMITTED TO OUR OLD ACQUAINTANCE, Monsieur G, THE PREFECT OF THE PARISIAN POLICE. WE GAVE HIM A HEARTY WELCOME. "'for there was nearly half as much of the entertaining as of the contemptible about the man, and we had not seen him for several years. We had been sitting in the dark, and Dupin now arose for the purpose of lighting a lamp, but sat down again, without doing so, upon G's saying that he had called to consult us, or rather to ask the opinion of my friend about some official business which had occasioned a great deal of trouble.' "'If it is any point requiring reflection,' observed Dupin, as he forbore to enkindle the wick, "'we shall examine it to better purpose in the dark.' "'That is another of your odd notions,' said the prefect, who had a fashion of calling everything odd that was beyond his comprehension, and thus lived amid an absolute legion of oddities. "'Very true,' said Dupin, as he supplied his visitor with a pipe and rolled towards him in a comfortable chair." "'And what is the difficulty now?' I asked. "'Nothing more in the assassination way, I hope.' "'Oh, no, nothing of that nature. The fact is, the business is very simple indeed, and I make no doubt that we can manage it sufficiently well ourselves. But then I thought Dupin would like to hear the details of it, because it is so excessively odd.' "'Simple and odd,' said Dupin. "'Why, yes,' "'and not exactly that, either. "'The fact is, we have all been a good deal puzzled "'because the affair is so simple, "'and yet baffles us altogether.' "'Perhaps it is the very simplicity of the thing "'which puts you at fault,' said my friend. "'What nonsense do you talk?' replied the prefect, "'laughing heartily. "'Perhaps the mystery is a little too plain,' said Dupin. "'Ah, good heavens! "'Who ever heard of such an idea?' "'a little too self-evident.' "'Ha! ha! ha!' roared our visitor, profoundly amused. "'Oh, Dupin, "'you'll be the death of me yet!' "'And what, "'after all, is the matter on hand?' "'I asked. "'Why, I will tell you,' replied "'the prefect, as he gave a long, steady "'and contemplative puff, "'and settled himself in his chair. "'I will tell you in a few words. "'But before I begin,' Let me caution you that this is an affair demanding the greatest secrecy, and that I should most probably lose the position I now hold were it known that I confided to anyone. Please proceed, said I. Or not, said Dupin. Well, then, I have received personal information from a very high quarter that a certain document of the last importance has been purloined from the royal apartments. THE INDIVIDUAL WHO PURLOINED IT IS KNOWN, THIS BEYOND A DOUBT. HE WAS SEEN TO TAKE IT. IT IS KNOWN, ALSO, THAT IT STILL REMAINS IN HIS POSSESSION. "'How is this known?' asked Dupin. "'It is clearly inferred,' replied the prefect, "'from the nature of the document, "'and from the non-appearance of certain results "'which would at once arise from its passing out of the robber's possession. "'That is to say,' "'from his employing it as he must design in the end to employ it.' "'Could you be a little more explicit?' I said. "'Well, I may venture so far as to say that the paper gives its holder a certain power in a certain quarter where such power is immensely valuable.' The prefect was fond of the cant of diplomacy. "'Still, I don't quite understand,' said Dupin. "'No?' Well, the disclosure of the document to a third person, who shall be nameless, would bring in question the honour of a personage of most exalted station, and this fact gives the holder of the document an ascendancy over the illustrious personage whose honour and peace are so jeopardised. But this ascendancy, I interposed, would depend upon the robber's knowledge of the loser's knowledge of the robber. Who would dare... The thief, said G, is the minister D, who dares all things, those unbecoming as well as those becoming a man. The method of the theft was not less ingenious than bold. The document in question, a letter, to be frank, had been received by the personage robbed while alone in the royal boudoir. During its perusal, she was suddenly interrupted by the entrance of the other exalted personage from whom especially it was her wish to conceal it. After a hurried and vain endeavour to thrust it in a drawer, she was forced to place it, open as it was, upon a table. The address, however, was uppermost, and, the contents thus unexposed, the letter escaped notice. At this juncture enters the Minister D., his lynx eye immediately perceives the paper, recognizes the handwriting of the address, observes the confusion of the person addressed, and fathoms her secret. After some business transactions, hurried through in his extraordinary manner, he produces a letter somewhat similar to the one in question, opens it, pretends to read it, and then places it in close juxtaposition to the other. Again he converses for some fifteen minutes upon the public affairs. At length, in taking leave, he takes also from the table the letter to which he had no claim. Its rightful owner saw, but of course dared not call attention to the act, in the presence of the third personage who stood at her elbow. The minister decamped, leaving his own letter, one of no importance, upon the table. Here, then, said Dupin to me, you have precisely what you demand to make the ascendancy complete the robber's knowledge of the loser's knowledge of the robber. Yes, replied the prefect, and the power thus attained has, for some months past, been wielded for political purposes to a very dangerous extent. The personage robbed is more thoroughly convinced every day of the necessity of reclaiming her letter. "'but this, of course, cannot be done openly. "'Driven to despair, she has committed the matter to me.' Then, whom?' said Dupin, amid a perfect whirlwind of smoke. "'No more sagacious agent could, I suppose, be desired or even imagined.' "'You flatter me,' replied the prefect. "'But it is possible that some such opinion may have been entertained.' IT IS CLEAR, SAID I, AS YOU OBSERVE, THAT THE LETTER IS STILL IN POSSESSION OF THE MINISTER, SINCE IT IS THIS POSSESSION, AND NOT ANY EMPLOYMENT OF THE LETTER, WHICH BESTOWS THE POWER. WITH THE EMPLOYMENT THE POWER DEPARTS. TRUE, SAID G, AND UPON THIS CONVICTION I PROCEEDED. MY FIRST CARE WAS TO MAKE A THOROUGH SEARCH OF THE MINISTER'S HOTEL, AND HERE MY CHIEF EMBARRASSMENT LAY IN THE NECESSITY OF SEARCHING WITHOUT HIS KNOWLEDGE. Beyond all things, I have been warned of the danger which would result from giving him reason to suspect our design. But, said I, you are quite, you are quite au fait in these investigations. The Parisian police have done this thing often before. Oh, yes, and for this reason I did not despair. The habits of the minister gave me, too, a great advantage. He is frequently absent from home all night. His servants are by no means numerous they sleep at a distance from their master's apartment, and being chiefly Neapolitans, are readily made drunk. I have keys, as you know, with which I can open any chamber or cabinet in Paris. For three months a night has not passed, during the greater part of which I have not been engaged, personally, in ransacking that hotel. My honor is interested, and, to mention a great secret, the reward is enormous.' "'so I did not abandon the search "'until I had become fully satisfied "'that the thief was a more astute man than myself. "'I fancy that I have investigated "'every nook and corner of the premises "'in which it is possible that the paper can be concealed. "'We'll return with Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter "'when after these sponsor messages. "'And now back to our story.' "'But is it not possible,' I suggested, "'that although the letter may be in possession of the minister, "'as it unquestionably is, "'he may have concealed it elsewhere than upon his own premises?' "'This is barely possible,' said Dupin. "'The present peculiar condition of affairs at court, "'and especially of those intrigues in which he is known to be involved, "'would render the instant availability of the document, "'its susceptibility of being produced at a moment's notice,' a point of nearly equal importance with its possession. "'It's susceptibility of being produced?' said I. "'That is to say, of being destroyed,' said Dupin. "'True,' I observed. "'The paper is clearly then upon the premises. "'As for its being upon the person of the minister, "'we may consider that as out of the question.' "'Entirely,' said the prefect. "'He has been twice waylaid,' as if by footpads, and his person rigorously searched under my own inspection. "'You might have spared yourself this trouble,' said Dupin. "'He is, I presume, not altogether a fool, and if not, must have anticipated those way-lanes as a matter of course.' "'Not altogether a fool,' said G., "'but then he is a poet, which I take to be only one remove from a fool.' "'True?' said Dupin, after a long and thoughtful whiff from his meerschaum, although I have been guilty of certain dog roll myself. Suppose you detail, said I, the particulars of your search. Why, the fact is, we took our time, and we searched everywhere. I have had long experience in these affairs. I took the entire building, room by room, devoting the nights of a whole week to each. We examined, first— the furniture of each apartment. We opened every possible drawer. And I presume you know that, to a properly trained police agent, such a thing as a secret drawer is impossible. Any man is adult who permits a secret drawer to escape him in a search of this kind. The thing is so plain. There is a certain amount of bulk of space to be accounted for in every cabinet. Then we have accurate rules. The fiftieth part of a line could not escape us. After the cabinets we took the chairs, the cushions we probed with the fine long needles you have seen me employ, from the tables we removed the tops. Why so? Sometimes the top of a table, or other similarly arranged piece of furniture, is removed by the person wishing to conceal an article. Then the leg is excavated, the article deposited within the cavity, and the top replaced. The bottoms and tops of bed-posts are employed in the same way. "'But could not the cavity be detected by sounding?' I asked. "'By no means, if, when the article is deposited, a sufficient wadding of cotton be placed around it. Besides, in our case, we were obliged to proceed without noise. "'But you could not have removed, you could not have taken to pieces all articles of furniture in which it would have been possible to make a deposit,' "'in the manner you mention. "'A letter may be compressed into a thin spiral roll, "'not differing much in shape or bulk from a large knitting needle, "'and in this form it might be inserted into the rung of a chair, for example. "'You did not take to pieces all the chairs?' "'Certainly not, but we did better. "'We examined the rungs of every chair in the hotel, "'and indeed the jointings of every description of furniture, "'by the aid of a most powerful microscope.' "'Had there been any traces of recent disturbance, "'we should not have failed to detect it instantly. "'A single grain of gimlet dust, for example, "'would have been as obvious as an apple. "'Any disorder in the gluing, "'any unusual gaping in the joints, "'would have sufficed to ensure detection.' "'I presume you looked to the mirrors "'between the boards and the plates, "'and you probed the beds and the bedclothes, "'as well as the curtains and carpets?' "'That, of course,' and when we had absolutely completed every particle of the furniture in this way, then we examined the house itself. We divided its entire surface into compartments, which we numbered, so that none might be missed. Then we scrutinized each individual square inch throughout the premises, including the two houses immediately adjoining, with the microscope as before. "'The two houses adjoining?' I exclaimed. "'You must have had a great deal of trouble.' We had, but the reward offered is prodigious. You include the grounds about the houses? All the grounds are paved with brick. They gave us comparatively little trouble. We examined the moss between the bricks, and found it undisturbed. And you did look among his papers, of course, and into the books of the library? Certainly. We opened every package and parcel. We not only opened every book, but we turned over every leaf in each volume— not contenting ourselves with a mere shake, according to the fashion of some of our police officers. We also measured the thickness of every book cover, with the most accurate admeasurement, and applied to each the most jealous scrutiny of the microscope. Had any of the bindings been recently meddled with, it would have been utterly impossible that the fact should have escaped observation. Some five or six volumes, just from the hands of the binder, we carefully probed longitudinally with the needles." YOU EXPLORED THE FLOORS BENEATH THE CARPETS? BEYOND DOUBT. WE REMOVED EVERY CARPET AND EXAMINED THE BOARDS WITH THE MICROSCOPE. AND THE PAPER ON THE WALLS? YES. YOU LOOKED INTO THE CELLARS? WE DID. THEN, I SAID, YOU HAVE BEEN MAKING A MISCALCULATION, AND THE LETTER IS NOT UPON THE PREMISES, AS YOU SUPPOSE. I FEAR YOU WERE RIGHT THERE, SAID THE PREFECT. "'And now, Dupin, what would you advise me to do?' "'To make a thorough research of the premises.' "'That's absolutely needless. "'I am not more sure than I breathe "'than I am that that letter is not at that hotel.' "'I have no better advice to give you,' said Dupin. "'You have, of course, an accurate description of the letter?' "'Oh, yes, and here the prefect, producing a memorandum-book,' proceeded to read aloud a minute account of the internal and especially of the external appearance of the missing document. Soon after finishing the perusal of this description, he took his departure, more entirely depressed in spirits than I had ever known the good gentleman before. In about a month afterwards he paid us another visit and found us occupied very nearly as before. He took a pipe and a chair and entered into some ordinary conversation. At length I said, "'Well, but, gee, what of the purloined letter? "'I presume you have at last made up your mind "'that there is no such thing as overreaching the minister?' "'Confound him! Say I, yes. "'I made the re-examination, however, as Dupin suggested. "'But it was all labor lost, as I knew it would be.' "'How much was the reward offered, did you say?' asked Dupin. "'Why, a very great deal.' "'a very liberal reward. "'I don't like to say how much precisely. "'But one thing I will say, "'that I wouldn't mind giving my individual check "'for fifty thousand francs "'to anyone who could obtain me that letter. "'The fact is, "'it is becoming of more and more importance every day, "'and the reward has been lately doubled. "'If it were trebled, however, "'I could do no more than I had done.' "'Why, yes,' said Dupin, drawlingly, "'between the whiffs of his meerschaum.' "'I really think, gee, you have not exerted yourself to the utmost in this matter. You might do a little more, I think, eh?' "'How? In what way?' "'Why? Puff, puff, you might—puff, puff, employ counsel in the matter, eh? Puff, puff. "'Do you remember the story they tell of Abernethy?' "'No, hang Abernethy.' "'To be sure, hang him and welcome. But, once upon a time, a certain rich miser conceived the design of sponging upon this Abernethy for a medical opinion. Getting up, for this purpose, an ordinary conversation in a private company, he insinuated his case to the physician as that of an imaginary individual. "'We will suppose,' said the miner, "'that his symptoms are such and such. Now, doctor,' "'What would you have directed him to take?' "'Take?' said Abernethy. "'Why, take advice, to be sure.' "'But,' said the prefect, "'a little discomposed, "'I am perfectly willing to take advice, "'and to pay for it. "'I would really give fifty thousand francs "'to anyone who would aid me in the matter.' "'In that case,' replied Dupin, "'opening a drawer and producing a checkbook,' "'You may as well fill me up a check for the amount mentioned. "'When you have signed it, I will hand you the letter.' "'I was astounded. "'The prefect appeared absolutely thunder-stricken. "'For some minutes he remained speechless and motionless, "'looking incredulously at my friend with open mouth "'and eyes that seemed starting from their sockets. "'Then, apparently recovering himself in some measure, "'he seized a pen, and after several pauses and vacant stares, finally filled up and signed a check for 50,000 francs and handed it across the table to dupin the latter examined it carefully and deposited it in his pocketbook then unlocking an escritoire took thence a letter and gave it to the prefect this functionary grasped it in a perfect agony of joy opened it with a trembling hand cast a rapid glance at its contents and then scrambling and struggling to the door rushed at length unceremoniously from the room and from the house, without having uttered a syllable, since Dupin had requested him to fill up the cheque. When he had gone, my friend entered into some explanations. "'The Parisian police,' he said, "'are exceedingly able in their way. "'They are persevering, ingenious, cunning, "'and thoroughly versed in the knowledge "'which their duties seem chiefly to demand. "'Thus, when our friend G., detailed to us his mode of searching the premises at the Hotel D, I felt entire confidence in his having made a satisfactory investigation, so far as his labours extended. "'So far as his labours extended?' said I. "'Yes,' said Dupin. "'The measures adopted were not only the best of their kind, but carried out to absolute perfection. Had the letter been deposited within the range of their search,' These fellows would, beyond a question, have found it. I merely laughed, but he seemed quite serious in all that he said. The measures then, he continued, were good in their kind, and well executed, their defect lay in their being inapplicable to the case, and to the man. A certain set of highly ingenious resources are, with the prefect, a sort of procrustean bed to which he forcibly adapts his designs, but he perpetually errs by being too deep or too shallow for the matter in hand, and many a schoolboy is a better reasoner than he. I knew one about eight years of age, whose success at guessing in the game of even and odd attracted universal admiration. This game is simple, and it's played with marbles. One player holds in his hand a number of these toys, and demands of another whether that number is even or odd if the guess is right, the guesser wins one. If wrong, he loses one. The boy to whom I allude won all the marbles of the school. Of course he had some principle of guessing, and this lay in mere observation and ad measurement of the astuteness of his opponents. For example, an errant simpleton is his opponent, and, holding up his closed hand, asks, Are they even or odd? Our schoolboy replies, Odd and loses but upon the second trial he wins for he then says to himself the simpleton had them even upon the first trial and his amount of cunning is just sufficient to make him have them odd upon the second i will therefore guess odd he guesses odd and wins now with a simpleton a degree above the first he would have reasoned thus this fellow finds that in the first instance i guessed odd and in the second He will propose to himself, upon the first impulse, a simple variation from even to odd, as did the first simpleton. But then a second thought will suggest that this is too simple a variation, and finally he will decide upon putting it even as before. I will therefore guess even. He guesses even and wins. Now this mode of reasoning in the schoolboy, whom his fellows termed lucky, what, in its last analysis, is it? It is merely, I said, an identification of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent. It is, said Dupin. And upon inquiring of the boy by what means he effected the thorough identification in which his success consisted, I received answer as follows When I wish to find out how wise, or how stupid, or how good, or how wicked is anyone, or what are his thoughts at the moment, I fashion the expression of my face as accurately as possible, in accordance with the expression of his, and then wait to see what thoughts or sentiments arise in my mind or heart, as if to match or correspond with the expression. This response of the schoolboy lies at the bottom of all the spurious profundity which has been attributed to Rochefoucauld, to La Bougueve, to Machiavelli, and to Campanella. And the identification, I said, of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent, depends, if I understand you are right, upon the accuracy with which the opponent's intellect is admeasured. For its practical value it depends upon this, replied Dupin, and the prefect and his cohort fail so frequently, first, by default of this identification, and secondly, by ill-admeasurement, or rather through non-admeasurement, of the intellect with which they are engaged. They consider only their own ideas of ingenuity, and, in searching for anything hidden, advert only to the modes in which they would have hidden it. They are right in this much, that their own ingenuity is a faithful representative of that of the mass. But when the cunning of the individual felon is diverse in character from their own, the felon foils them, of course. This always happens when it is above their own, and very usually when it is below, They have no variation of principle in their investigations. At best, when urged by some unusual emergency, by some extraordinary reward, they extend or exaggerate their old modes of practice without touching their principles. What, for example, in this case of D, has been done to vary the principle of action? What is all this boring and probing and sounding and scrutinizing with the microscope and dividing the surface of the building into registered square inches? What is it all but an exaggeration of the application of the own principle or set of principles of search, which are based upon the one set of notions regarding human ingenuity, to which the prefect, in the long routine of his duty, has been accustomed? Do you not see he has taken it for granted that all men proceed to conceal a letter, not exactly in a gimlet-hole bored in a chair-leg, but at least in some out-of-the-way hole or corner suggested by the same tenor of thought which would urge a man to secrete a letter in a gimlet-hole bored in a chair-leg. And do you not see also that such recherche nooks for concealment are adapted only for ordinary occasions and would be adopted only by ordinary intellects? For in all cases of concealment A disposal of the article concealed, a disposal of it in this recherche manner, is, in the very first instance, presumable and presumed, and thus its discovery depends not at all upon the acumen, but altogether upon the mere care, patience, and determination of the seekers, and where the case is of importance, or what amounts to the same thing in the political eyes, when the reward is of magnitude— the qualities in question have never been known to fail. You will now understand what I meant in suggesting that, had the purline letter been hidden anywhere within the limits of the prefect's examination, in other words, had the principle of its concealment been comprehended within the principles of the prefect, its discovery would have been a matter altogether beyond question. This functionary, however, has been thoroughly mystified, and the remote source of his defeat lies in the supposition that the minister is a fool, because he has acquired renown as a poet. All fools are poets. This the prefect feels, and he is merely guilty of a non-distributio medii in thence inferring that all poets are fools. But is this really the poet? I asked. There are two brothers I know, and both have attained reputation in letters. The minister, I believe, has written learnedly on the differential calculus. He is a mathematician, and no poet. You are mistaken there. I know him well. He is both. As poet and mathematician, he would reason well. As mere mathematician, he could not have reasoned at all, and thus would have been at the mercy of the prefect. You surprise me, I said, by these opinions, which have been contradicted by the voice of the world. You do not mean to set it not the well-digested idea of centuries. The mathematical reason has long been regarded as the reason par excellence. Ilia a parier, replied Dupin, quoting from Chamford. The mathematicians, I grant you, have done their best to promulgate the popular error to which you allude, and which is none less an error for its promulgation as truth. With an art worthy a better cause, for example, they have insinuated the term ANALYSIS, INTO APPLICATION TO ALGEBRA. THE FRENCH ARE THE ORIGINATORS OF THIS PARTICULAR DECEPTION, BUT IF A TERM IS OF ANY IMPORTANCE, IF WORDS DERIVE ANY VALUE FROM APPLICABILITY, THEN ANALYSIS CONVEYS ALGEBRA ABOUT AS MUCH AS, IN LATIN, AMBITUS IMPLIES AMBITION, RELIGIO, RELIGION, OR homines HONESTY, A SET OF HONORABLE MEN. You have a quarrel on hand, I see, said I, with some of the algebraists of Paris. But proceed. I dispute the availability, and thus the value, of that reason which is cultivated in any especial form other than abstractly logical. I dispute, in particular, the reason adduced by mathematical study. The mathematics are the science of form and quantity. Mathematical reasoning is merely logic applied to observation upon form and quantity. The great error lies in supposing that even the truths of what is called pure algebra are abstract or general truths, and this error is so egregious that I am confounded at the universality with which it has been received. Mathematical axioms are not axioms of general truth. What is true of relation, of form and quantity, is often grossly false in regard to morals. For example, what I am trying to say... Continued Dupin, while I merely laughed at his last observations, that if the minister had been no more than a mathematician, the prefect would have been under no necessity of giving me this check. I know him, however, as both mathematician and poet, and my measures were adapted to his capacity with reference to the circumstances by which he was surrounded. I knew him as a courtier, too, and as a bold intrigant. Such a man, I considered. "'could not fail to be aware of the ordinary political modes of action. "'He could not have failed to anticipate, "'and events have proved that he did not fail to anticipate, "'the way lanes to which he was subjected. "'He must have foreseen, I reflected, "'the secret investigations of his premises. "'His frequent absences from home at night, "'which were hailed by the prefect as certain age to his success, "'I regarded only as ruses, "'to afford opportunity for thorough search to the police.' and thus the sooner to impress them with the conviction to which G. arrived—in fact, did finally arrive—the conviction that the letter was not upon the premises. I felt also that the whole train of thought, which I was at some pains in detailing to you just now, concerning the invariable principle of policial action in searches for articles concealed, I felt that this whole train of thought would necessarily pass through the mind of the minister— it would lead him to despise all the ordinary nooks of concealment. He could not, I reflected, be so weak as not to see that the most intricate and remote recess of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closets to the eyes, to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. I saw, in fine, that he would be driven, as a matter of course, to simplicity, if not deliberately induced to it as a matter of choice. "'You will remember, perhaps, how desperately the prefect laughed "'when I suggested upon our first interview "'that it was just possible this mystery troubled him so much "'on account of its being so very self-evident?' "'Yes,' said I. "'I remember his merriment well. "'I really thought he would have fallen into convulsions.' "'The material world,' continued Dupin, "'abounds with very strict analogies to the immaterial.' and thus the same color of truth has been given to the rhetorical dogma, that metaphor, or simile, may be made to strengthen an argument, as well as to embellish a description. Again, have you ever noticed which of the street signs over the shop doors are the most attractive of intention? I've never given the matter a thought, I said. There is a game of puzzles, he resumed, which is played upon a map. One party playing requires another to find a given word—the name of a town, a river, a state, or empire—any word, in short, upon the motley and perplexed surface of the chart. A novice in the game generally seeks to embarrass his opponents by giving them the most minutely lettered names. But the adept selects such words as stretch, in large characters, from one end of the chart to the other. These, like the over-largely lettered signs and placards of the street— escape observation by dint of being excessively obvious. And here the physical oversight is precisely analogous with the moral inapprehension by which the intellect suffers to pass unnoticed those considerations which are too obtrusively and too palpably self-evident. But this is a point, it appears, somewhat above or beneath the understanding of the prefect. He never once thought it probable or possible that the minister had deposited the letter immediately beneath the nose of the whole world, by way of best preventing any portion of that world from perceiving it. But the more I reflected upon the daring, dashing, and discriminating ingenuity of D, upon the fact that the document must always have been at hand, if he intended to use it to good purpose, and upon the decisive evidence obtained by the prefect, that it was not hidden within the limits of that dignitary's ordinary search, the more satisfied I became that, to conceal this letter, the minister had resorted to the comprehensive and sagacious expedient of not attempting to conceal it at all. Full of these ideas, I prepared myself with a pair of green spectacles and called one fine morning, quite by accident, at the ministerial hotel. I found D at home, yawning, lounging, and dawdling as usual, and pretending to be in the last extremity of ennui. Total boredom! He is, perhaps, the most really energetic human being now alive, but that is only when nobody sees him. To be even with him, I complained of my weak eyes, and lamented the necessity of the spectacles, under cover of which I cautiously and thoroughly surveyed the whole apartment, while seemingly intent only upon the conversation of my host. I paid especial attention to a large writing-table near which he sat, and upon which lay confusedly, Some miscellaneous letters and other papers, with one or two musical instruments and a few books. Here, however, after a long and very deliberate scrutiny, I saw nothing to excite particular suspicion. At length, my eyes, in going to the circuit of the room, fell upon a trumpery filigree card rack of pasteboard that hung dangling by a dirty blue ribbon from a little brass knob just beneath the middle of the mantelpiece. In this rack, which had three or four compartments, were five or six visiting cards and a solitary letter. This last was much soiled and crumpled. It was torn nearly in two across the middle, as if a design in the first instance would tear it entirely up as worthless, had been altered or stayed in the second. It had a large black seal bearing the D cipher very conspicuously and was addressed in a diminutive female hand to D, the minister himself. It was thrust carelessly and even, as it seemed, contemptuously, into one of the uppermost divisions of the rack. No sooner had I glanced at this letter than I concluded it to be that of which I was in search. To be sure it was, to all appearance, radically different from the one of which the prefect had read a so minute a description. Here the seal was large and black, with the D cipher. There it was small and red, with the ducal arms of the S family here the address to the minister, diminutive and feminine. There the superscription to a certain royal personage was markedly bold and decided. The size alone formed a point of correspondence. But, then, the radicalness of these differences, which were excessive, the dirt, the soiled and torn condition of the paper, so inconsistent with the true methodical habits of D., and so suggestive of a design to delude the beholder into an idea of the worthlessness of the document, these things, together with the hyperobtrusive situation of this document, full in the view of every visitor, and thus exactly in accordance with the conclusions to which I had previously arrived, these things, I say, were strongly corroborative of suspicion in one who came with the intention to suspect. I protracted my visit as long as possible, and, While I maintained a most animated discussion with the minister upon a topic which I knew well had never failed to interest and excite him, I kept my attention really riveted upon the letter. In this examination, I committed to memory its external appearance and arrangement in the rack, and also fell, at length, upon a discovery which set at rest whatever trivial doubt I might have entertained. In scrutinizing the edges of the paper, I observed them to be more chafed than seemed necessary. They presented the broken appearance which is manifested when a stiff paper, having been once folded and pressed with a folder, is refolded in a reverse direction, in the same creases or edges which had formed the original fold. This discovery was sufficient. It was clear to me now that the letter had been turned, as a glove, inside out, redirected and resealed. I bade the minister good morning, and took my departure at once, leaving a gold snuff-box upon the table. The next morning I called for the snuff-box, when we resumed, quite eagerly, the conversation of the preceding day. While thus engaged, however, a loud report, as if of a pistol, was heard immediately beneath the windows of the hotel, and was succeeded by a series of fearful screams and the shoutings of a terrified mob. He rushed to a casement, threw it open, and looked out. In the meantime, I stepped to the card-rack, took the letter, put it in my pocket, and and replaced it with a facsimile, so far as regards externals, which I had carefully prepared at my lodgings, imitating the D cipher, very readily, by means of a seal formed of bread. The disturbance in the street had been occasioned by the frantic behavior of a man with a musket. He had fired it among a crowd of women and children. It proved, however, to have been without ball, and the fellow was suffered to go his way as a lunatic or a drunkard. When he had gone... D. came from the window, whither I had followed him immediately upon securing the object in view. Soon afterwards I bade him farewell. The pretended lunatic was a man in my own pay. But what purpose had you, I asked, in replacing the letter by a facsimile? Would it not have been better at the first visit to have seized it openly and departed? D. replied Dupin, is a desperate man, and a man of nerve, his hotel, too, is not without attendants devoted to his interests. Had I made the wild attempt you suggest, I might never have left the ministerial presence alive. The good people of Paris might have heard of me no more. But I had an object apart from these considerations. You know my political prepossessions. In this matter, I act as a partisan of the lady concerned. For eighteen months, the minister has had her in his power. She now has him in hers, since... Being unaware that the letter is not in his possession, he will proceed with his exactions as if it was. Thus will he inevitably commit himself at once to his political destruction. His downfall, too, will not be more precipitate than awkward. It is all very well to talk about the fastless descensus of Ernie, but in all kinds of climbing, as Catalani said of singing, it is far more easy to get up than to come down." IN THE PRESENT INSTANCE I HAVE NO SYMPATHY, AT LEAST NO PITY, FOR HIM WHO DESCENDS. HE IS THAT MONSTRUM HORRENDUM, AN UNPRINCIPLED MAN OF GENIUS. I CONFESS, HOWEVER, THAT I SHOULD LIKE VERY WELL TO KNOW THE PRECISE CHARACTER OF HIS THOUGHTS, WHEN, BEING DEFIED BY HER WHOM THE PREFECT TERMS A CERTAIN PERSONAGE, HE IS REDUCED TO OPENING THE LETTER WHICH I LEFT FOR HIM IN THE CARD-RACK. HOW DID YOU PUT ANYTHING PARTICULAR IN IT? Why, it did not seem altogether right to leave the interior blank. That would have been insulting. D., at Vienna once, did me an evil turn, which I told him, quite good-humouredly, that I should remember. So, as I knew he would feel some curiosity in regard to the identity of the person who had outwitted him, I thought it a pity not to give him a clue. He is well acquainted with my M.S., and I just copied into the middle of the blank sheet the words— such a baleful scheme, while not worthy of Atreus, is worthy of Thiestes. The lines come from a revenge tragedy called Atre et Thieste, written in French in 1707 by a playwright called Prosper Joliat Sœur de Corbillon. It features Atreus and Thiestes, two brothers from Greek mythology, whose ruthless, bloody, and lifelong feud gives new meaning to the phrase Sibling Rivalry. Thanks for joining us for The Purloin Letter, one of the very first detective short stories, this one written by Edgar Allan Poe. If you plan on being a Poe toaster on January 19th, please do leave us a review and let us know what type of liqueur you left behind. We'd love hearing from you. (laughs) If you enjoy 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please do stop and give us a review. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for stopping by, and we'll be back soon.